You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Humanize Me, and welcome to 2018. It's a new year. Yeah, and I, I'm a new Bart Campolo. Actually, I'm not. I'm the same old Bart Campolo. I mean, I know at the end of the year, at the beginning of the new year, everybody makes resolutions and I'm going to be a different person and we're all tempted to kind of make promises and, and you know, and I am not immune to that temptation. And a big part of me wanted to get on the, you know, get on the mic today and tell you about all the things that are going to be different and better in 2018. But like, you know, I am going to resist that temptation. It doesn't mean I don't have resolutions. It doesn't mean I'm not going to try to be better. It just means I'm... We all, we, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know it doesn't go well when I make big promises. So I'm going to try to change, and you'll know the changes I'm going to try to make if I make them. Because you'll say, like, wow, that changed. But uh, in the meantime, I'm pretty excited about the conversation I've got to share with you. Um, I don't usually do this where I, I, I talk to somebody who I've never met before. But a few podcast listeners that had, had encountered Sammy Rangel... Um, and this whole life after hate movement. And they said, man, this guy has something that you gotta, you gotta get in on. And so I arranged a phone call and we set it up. And it's one of those experiences where like five seconds after he opened his mouth, I knew I just liked this guy a ton. And I, I think you'll sort of pick it up in the conversation that like there was a good vibe um, between us. And it's funny, you might say, like, what does a guy coming out of hardcore violence, prison, you know, what, you know, you know, hate groups, what does that have to do with the kind of community building that we're talking about? And I, I, I tell you, I think at the end of the at the end of the conversation, you're going to see the connections there. They were pretty clear to me. And so I'm not going to talk a long, lot more about the, the, the thing. I, I just think you're going to dig it. Um, but in the meantime couple of things. First of all, I got to tell you that that you know, if, if you've ever looked at our Patreon page, one of the things that it tells you is like, if you support the podcast at this level, you'll get a book. If you support it at this level. And one of the things is if you support it at some level, you get a shout out. And I honestly, I set the number high enough that I didn't think I would have to be shouting out to anybody. But the truth is, over the last two months, we've amassed 20 supporters for this podcast people who who give a little bit of money each month or some people give a lot of money they do and so you know i'm i eventually i'll probably recognize everybody because like 20 people isn't that many and i love every one of you for doing it but today i gotta tell you some of the people these are people i actually know which is really exciting people i've gotten to know through the podcast but daniel jones i know you're out there i know you listen to this podcast I know you support this podcast and I want everybody to know what a big deal it is. It's huge to me. And, and, and Rob Bronson, likewise, you are, you know, the, 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 like literally when I pick up the microphone, I think about, like, oh, there's Daniel. Oh, there's Rob. Because I know they're out there and I know they're behind us. And uh, Connie, Connie Dollins, my beloved friend in Oklahoma, um, man, it feels great to have you on this team. I just have to be honest about that. Um, and Brandon, Brandon Shaw, 
there it is. I'm, I'm just gonna talk about you for today because whether you know it or not, and I think you know it, it's hard for me to just keep doing this stuff when I sometimes feel alone because I'm like alone at the microphone and I don't have anyone in the office. I'm trying to rectify that right now. But I gotta tell you, when I hear from you and when you send those emails of encouragement, it it just, you know, sometimes people say to me, hey, your podcast really makes a difference in my life. And I just need you guys to know that your support and your encouragement means a lot in my life. So there, I, I, I guess that counts as a, a shout out. I hope so. Um, the other thing I want to tell you is, is I've been talking about that crazy documentary that John Wright made about me and my dad, which has had like three different titles so far. But I, I finally gave up talking about it because it felt like it was never going to be finished. It was never going to be released. And the weird thing is, is just when I wasn't looking over the Christmas holiday, the film got released. At least, at least it's available for release. Like, so what it is, is they, they've released it on a platform where you can arrange to have a screening in your home with just you and a handful of your friends or at a, at a church or at an, a humanist club or, or, or an atheist group, or you can arrange to actually, some people are doing it where they're setting up screenings in actual movie theaters. And there's a way to do that. It's not, and it doesn't cost you anything to set it up in a movie theater. You just have to get enough people to go to it to make it work. Um, and all the information about that, about how to get the film and how to screen the film is available at campolofilm.com. And listen, I didn't make the movie. All right. I'm just giving you the information. And uh, the truth is, it's been so long since that thing was shot. I kind of forgot what it was all about. And a friend of mine saw it recently. Um, and he called me up and he said, man, you really ought to watch that movie. It, it's good stuff. And, and I did watch it again. And the truth is, it's not like I'm good stuff. Um, I don't even know, like the way they edit these movies, like I don't even, like I felt like I could have come off even better. But what is good is, is that there's this relationship that I have with my dad um, that I think comes across. And that is this genuine love and desire to connect between a, a hardcore Christian and a, and a pretty serious secular humanist. And I think there's something there worth, uh, I don't know, just worth celebrating. And, and, and the movie is kind of a celebration of that relationship. It, it, I mean, I know Christians have seen it and loved it. And I know non-Christians that have seen it and, and secular humanists that have seen it and loved it. And it's some hardcore atheists have seen it and loved it. And so like, I don't know, like, I don't know what it's saying, but it's, it, there's something there for everybody. And, uh, so anyway, there, campolafilm.com, you go check it out. Um, yeah, I think it's called Leaving My Father's Religion now. I know it's called Leaving My Father's Religion. I shouldn't plead ignorance. Um, and they've got some new, some new artwork. It's, it's, just, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And, you know, I'll get John on the podcast to talk about it at some point. But in the meantime, I wanted to let you know it was out there because people are always asking me. That's it. Okay, well, I'm going to get on. We're going to cut right to the chase. We're going to get to the interview. And I'll catch you on the other side. So here's me and my new buddy, Sammy Rangel. So, I mean, I've read up a little bit on you, but what I basically have is this classic story of you were this, you had this really rough life growing up and you got involved in a whole lot of crazy stuff. Um, what, what I was confused by was that it sounds like you're like, you look a little Mexican. I know you got a little Native American in you. 
And I thought, I thought that this kind of like, um, that this kind of like violence and this kind of, uh, I thought this was like reserved for white people. I mean, you probably get that a lot, right? Like, because I mean, you were involved in these in these separatists, these hate groups, and I think of hate groups when you know I think of like the Aryan Brotherhood and all of that stuff. And I know you guys work with a lot of people coming out of that stuff, mm-hmm. but you weren't Aryan Brotherhood, obviously. No, no, I was a Chicago gang leader. You know, I was a part of a Chicago gang. We were probably one of the most violent Hispanic gangs in the city. Um, I, I think. You know, I, we back in the days, we nobody was really using terms like radicalization or violent extremism. Those are fairly new terms, and we can get into those later for for your listeners as they might want to know what those are. But you know, at seventeen, I went to prison as an adult for the first time. But that's not the first time I was locked up. But I was first time going into an adult system, and I was sent to a prison called Menard Correctional, which is in Southern Illinois. Now. All the other prisons in the state of in the state of Illinois were controlled by the black and Hispanic gangs. So it doesn't matter where you went, the black and Hispanics were the stronghold. They were the the majority, and they were the governing force for the inmates, right? And the system was corrupt enough back then that there were agreements with you know like administration, you know, over who had control in these prisons and resources. But I was shipped to this prison, uh, a maximum security prison at 17. I had eight months to do, but I was so violent and I was so, I was always um, uh, in the middle of or in the midst of fighting and, and aggression and you know attacks. So they sent me to this maximum security prison. Now, put into perspective, I'm in this maximum prison and up on the hill, what they called the hill is death row. And so John Wayne Gacy, uh, Richard Spencer, or um, some dude named Spencer, if I remember, uh, you know, there's these infamous uh, death row inmates up there. And my friends have 40 years, triple life sentences, 150 years, you know, and I'm a 17 year old scrawny street punk, you know, who's had to fight every inch and every day of his life just to be here. And, um, I walk into the middle of a race riot. It, it literally, I was there for, for, for a couple of months and you could feel the tension and, and then a race riot kicked off. So the, the whites had attacked a black inmate and the, the blacks, the black leadership and the Hispanic leadership at that time weren't going to stand by idly for that. Now, we were at a disadvantage because, you know, we were completely outnumbered. It was like 10 to 1. You know, the, that's how many whites were there. And ironically, the the white gangs forced other whites in t- to join their prison gang, whereas the Hispanics and the blacks didn't want anyone from prison joining their gang. So we had, we had even opposite philosophies on recruitment. You know, if you weren't a member from the street, you, you couldn't get in these other gangs. But if it didn't matter if you were a member or not, you were going to join and fight with the whites if you're a white. And so you can see how there's this radicalization process going on there. And what well, sounds like on the white side there was on, on, on the, on the Hispanic and black side, it doesn't sound like you, you guys, your outreach wasn't good. Well, we didn't want, we didn't want them, but what we did was deepen the involvement of the existing membership to a point where, um, to a point where, 
people, you know, they're walk. In my case, I walked in one way and walked out a completely different person, much more advanced, much more radical, much more violent, and and an extremist, of course, right? Um, so when this riot kicks off, I mean, you know, in this prison system, the guards have guns in the prison, so they can shoot you wherever you're at on any part of the prison. You know, there's very few blind spots that they can't get to, whether you're inside or outside of the buildings. And so when the riot kicked off, we all knew that we were going to be shot at, um, shot and killed, you know, but it was just, it was, things were so bad that people were going to take that risk. And instead of going home in 90 days, you know, from that riot, I was now facing, you know, what I thought was certain death. I thought we were marching into, you know, a dead end story right at this point. And I think I got uh, sent off with a group of about 10 men, um, one of which who I was responsible for protecting in the fight, you know, he, like it was my responsibility to protect this one guy. And then uh, we were going to face off with about 30 or 40 whites and all of us armed to the teeth. Like we have shanks and spears and anything that wasn't anything that could maim you, harm you, chairs, dust, legs, you know, you name it, man. And the fighting kicks off. And um, while we're, we're, we kind of took the back wall. We wanted the wall to our back so that, you know, we couldn't get flanked. And so the, these, this large group comes at us. The fighting starts. Everything's going kind of crazy. And then we see and hear the guard coming in, and he starts shooting into the building. Um, but he's shooting. Where he comes in is, like, level with the third floor, and we're in the bottom. So he starts shooting directly across up at, like, the third floor, what we call the third gallery. Yeah. Do the guards do the guards care who wins? Let me get to that. Okay. So they're shooting, and and there was we know we now know we didn't know what was going on up there, but it was a black man who was attacking a white kid up there, and then down on the bottom we're fighting. Now the guard when when the guard first shot, the group we were fighting ran. They went to go hide, and we. My team scattered, but when I scattered, I, I ended up scattering back to where we started instead of leaving with everybody else. I, it was just a reaction, like a, like we just it wasn't like planned. We just scattered literally. Yeah, I ended up going backwards instead of out. So that meant that now it's me with my back against the wall, and in between me and my friends are the thirty guys who are holding that line, you know, and I can't. I can't come out, but neither can they because the guard's pinning us down with his shooting. So when the guard, the guard's doing double duty, so he gets done shooting inside and then flips around to shoot outside. And when he did that, the the men that I, that we were fighting circled me. And uh, now I'm now starting to fight this group of like 30 men. Um, I'm getting shanked, you know, I'm trying to shank people, kill people, they're trying to kill me. And this black man saw that I was trapped. Uh, his name was New York. And I, I knew New York a little bit, but I wouldn't say we were friends. You know, we weren't, we, we were associates more or less. You know, we happened to be in the same Saha friendly, whatever. Um, but when he saw that I was trapped, he jumped in. He, he fought through the outside of that group to get to me in the middle. The only thing that's ironic and that stands out here is he was the only one out of the entire group that didn't have a knife on him or a, a single weapon. He was fighting. He was fist fighting other men who were armed, and I'm I'm armed. The guard comes back in, and a shot rings out. 
Now, out of the 32 people fighting, me with two knives taped to my hands, New York, the black guy who's unarmed, and the 30 armed men we're holding off, the guard shoots the black guy in the side of the stomach. Um, and the, again, everyone dispersed. And uh, at this point, I'm just kind of in shock. You know, like I, I'm stunned because I, I'm, I don't know if I'm shot or not, but I can see my friend is shot. And he's got a big hole in the side of his stomach. Like you can see his his organs and stuff and the blood and like it, it was instantaneous. It was just like a, a rip, like a rip in his body. And um, the guard was I remember the guard telling me not to touch him or he would shoot me. But at this point, I just didn't I didn't care. You know, I didn't I was numb. And uh, I knew it was this weird because, you know, in all this chaos, you can think clearly in a moment, you know, and I knew like if I left him there that these guys were going to take him in a cell and, and finish him off in an ugly way. So I grabbed him and I dragged him 150 cells to the other side of the cell hall. Um, and at this point, nobody was coming out to help me because that guard was following me, you know, walking along the catwalk. And when we got to the front of the um, to the front of the building, um, at that time, a superintendent, which is like a warden, was coming into the building with a with a whole team of security with him. And I guess the fighting, the fighting was erupting all over the prison. So the whole prison went off, not just our cell hall. The whole, all the inmates everywhere were fighting. So he comes in. He's got like ten guards with him. They surround me, New York, and the superintendent. Um, which to me I knew meant they weren't going to shoot because now I'm surrounded by all their friends, you know, and um, I asked the superintendent if we could get my friend some help. Like, can we get him? He's got to go to the doctor, to the hospital. And uh, his his words were no one in, no one out. And I'm like, he's going to die. Look at him, you know, and the guy's screaming, you know, he's in yeah. pain and he repeats one in or out. And then, um, I just thought about it real quick and I decided to start fighting. So I, st I punched that superintendent in the face and that kind of inspired others to come out and start fighting with the guards now. Now we're fighting with the guards and um, we overpowered the guards, took control of the cell hall, took the keys from the sergeant's cage and forced our way to the inmate hospital. Um, but at that point, um, the New York had already died. He had already um, passed away. So I'm sensing just the way you tell that story, I go like, that's a crucial moment in your life. Like, is it, does that represent some kind of turning point for you? Like, does something change after that? Or was that just like, that's how bad it was? No, it was a turning point. Um, I went from angry to, to hateful, um, which is a big difference in a person's life, you know. I And I also started to become like my enemy. I started to adopt their racial views, you know. I didn't really have fundamental issues with whites before that. I was in a Hispanic gang, and most of the enemies I fought growing up were other Hispanics or blacks, you know. I didn't I didn't have a, a, a an evil seed in my heart for whites, although I can tell you I didn't trust whites, you know, because of all the... Yeah, well, that's... You know, every, every time I went to prison or every time I got sent to a juvenile, home or it was always white faces you know on the other end of that but I didn't have hate for them until I saw how this whole riot played out and it, it didn't end there it didn't end there so I ended up getting sentenced to what's called administrative segregation because of my role in the riot I am now um, I am now seen 
uh, as a threat to security. So they, that means they can hold me indefinitely in the hole. They don't, they don't have to give me a time frame. Um, while we're in the hole, the fighting continues and it starts to break out at other prisons. Um, and what, what, and what year is all this? 93, 94. All right. So you're 17, 93, 94. You get caught up in all this. And like the only reason I'm pushing you along is because like I know we got a hard stop. But but I'm like, so you get swept up in this and it just it, that's that was sounds like that was a bad year for prison life. It, it was. And I end up spending the next 28 months in segregation because of that. But while we were while we were in the hole, they were still forcing us to go to wreck to go to the rec yard, which is a basically a, a cement like compound. Yeah, like a free for all. Yeah, and they were allowing the whites to go on the yard armed with shanks and we were being strip searched and ran with metal detectors and then being put on the yard. So we had to fight fight off armed, like, and this hat lasted for like nine months. Um, and so each one of those encounters, I think drove me to becoming more hateful and, and embracing like racist ideologies um so that when i got out of prison instead of you know i went in a street a street punk you know a gang a gang member a typical gang member i came out on some other stuff i came out brutal homicidal um predatory you know i had and, no and, and, you know and what's interesting is like a lot of times the anger it feels like that's about yourself like it's about the stuff that's happened to you and you're like you're hurt you're angry hate is focused on the other person it's like i hate you because of something about you it's not it's no longer just about like i'm sad i'm lonely i'm needy i'm hurting it's about like i hate you and and oh, it becomes an enemy. it becomes other other focused and so when you came out you had a thing against white people and they weren't charging people when i went back to prison in 94 with race crimes you know hate crimes right but I was arrested for eight counts of armed robbery and like six counts of those were against whites and I targeted those whites because they were white and and they were poor whites so it wasn't even really about robbing them it was it was about brutalizing tormenting torturing terrorizing yeah you know, yeah terrorizing these men and women um, and then I I go to prison again for those and while I'm in prison I'm still walking around with that hate and I beat up four more guards, um, kind of duplicating what I had just went through in Illinois, now here in Wisconsin. I beat up a guard that called me a spick and it just triggered, yeah. it triggered everything. And I, and I was 90 days from going home at that point. So instead of going home in two years, I went home seven years later, you know, and I spent of those seven years, probably five years in segregation, transferred like 17 times. It got so bad, bro that when they sent me to one of the last transfers they sent me to because of security risk, the prison saw that it was me and they rejected me. They refused to let me into the prison. So yeah. they had to drive me around on a bus to figure out where they were gonna send me. So I mean, like the weird thing is like, you hear a lot about people, oh, they learn hate from their parents. You know, they learn white, you know, white supremacy or black supremacy you know, from their parents. But like, you came by your hate honestly. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like some people like, oh, you know, nobody ever did anything to them, but they were taught that you should fear these people. You should hate these people. You came by it real honestly. 
you know, my my family was brutal to me. My my first 11 years were still worse than any of that I told you about. My family was, but I left home a runaway. I left home a forgotten child. I left home an abandoned child. Yeah. I, and, and I lived out my young teenage years, homeless and transient, and just fighting for an identity and existence. And, and again, to I me, that, little- that, right, to me, that makes you angry. That'll make you angry. It's like, nobody cares about me. Nobody looks after me. Everybody's against me. Um, but but it's it's unfocused. It's, a lot of times it's unfocused. You know, like it's just like I hate. I'm, I'm mad at everybody because of my situation. But by the time you got out of prison, especially that second time, you had a real laser focus here. You, you had an enemy. And so and now I have rank and I have power. I have authority. I have recognition. So now I'm able to leverage my my power and my position to do more of that terrorism. You know, of of my communities. And it's funny, Sammy, you don't you don't know this about me, but like I came out of hardcore evangelical Christianity. Okay, I, spend, I do know that about you. Okay. All right. So, you know, okay. So, so, so the weird thing is, is that, you know, when people say to me, like, what attracted you to that movement? You know, the thing like, because you wanted to go to heaven, because you felt deeply sinful. Like, oh, no, no, it's nothing to do with that kind of spirituality stuff. I'm not sure I even focused on that at all it was all about i wanted to belong to a group of people i want there was a sense of identity that joining that group gave me and and years later i read this book by eric hoffer a book called the true believer and and in this book this and he was like a blue collar intellectual and the guy was like look people join everything from the church to the street gang for the same reason they're people that are looking for a sense of identity. They're looking for a place of belonging. They're looking for a place where they can have meaning and, and, and like a tribe in which they, they feel connected. And I'm guessing, I mean, you sound like classic, my family sucked and life was bad. And, 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 and you kind of found an identity and a sense of belonging in this group. Well, I think it's, I'll take it a step further. Consider what an ionized atom is, right? An ionized atom is missing a proton. And an ionized atom is vulnerable to whatever protons are in its environment. So it's not necessarily that that I was, that I... It's going to connect with something. It's going to connect with yeah, something. It's, it's exactly, because there's some there's a void and there's there's something missing. And, and in this sense, identity, right? And so... You're, you're looking, you're not even necessarily looking, but you kind of are, but it's going to happen naturally as a result of your situation. And I think what me and you are talking about is important because we can be more mindful what kind of protons we put out in the, in the environment for those vulnerabilities in those environments with those populations that we know are, are like ionized atoms in a sense. It's so hilarious that you say that, not hilarious, but like when you leave christianity like i did it's not quite like getting out of a street gang but like there's a sense in which you experience some rejection you experience some and a lot of times like i went looking i when i jumped into a lot of the secular like the atheist groups and things like that mm-hmm. i was instantaneously because of my background i was like okay there's a lot of people out there that are missing something we need to go and recruit those people that are missing something into our into our community, and 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 the the, the organized atheist groups are like, no, 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 we don't recruit. That's what Christians do. You're like we're not we're not trying to win anybody over. Like like, and I was like, but don't you understand that anybody that's out there with that gap is vulnerable? They're they're like that gap hurts, and mm-hmm. so I was just like. 
people need to belong to something. And I didn't want to create an anti-Christian thing. I just wanted to create a place of belonging and love Mm -hmm. for people who couldn't believe in God. And it sounds like when you came out of, like it sounds like at some point you figured out that like there are all these people out there with the gap. But what is it that made you decide, I wanna fill that gap with positive things and love? Like what was the, what was the transition from, because clearly you're still a gang recruiter. You're just recruiting people into a different kind of gang. To a degree, I, I, except that, you know, when you don't comply in this world, you don't get beat up, killed, kidnapped, <laughs> right. shit like that, right? A very different kind of, a very different well, kind of community, a very right. different kind of community. <laughs> but like, but like, what is it that, where did you, where did the seed of compassion get sown in you? Yeah, that's a great question. And it was really the day that I think I was, somebody flipped back on my humanity switch by forcing me you know, it's really, I think self-awareness is fostered by being introduced to the unknown when you least expect it. And in many ways, um, being asked to talk about, I was, I was forced into a treatment group and, um, I did it because Wait, a drug, drug treatment, drug and criminal, um, criminal behavior group. Right? Is this so why you, prison. is this why, why you're inside? Okay. So you're inside. Yeah. And, and I wanted to do it because not because I wanted I thought I needed the help, but be, they promised that I would get out of prison earlier since I had lost so much of my good time for all the fighting that I would get out sooner than later. So that was the carrot for me. So I did it. Well, the guy first walked me through a series and all of this is important for your listeners through a series of letting me tell my story uninterrupted un, uncensored. I just got to tell my story, which in a sense, by his listening to that and my peers listening to that was validating because almost every other time I've tried to tell my story or share it, it was rejected, denied, condemned, minimized, or just ignored, right? So just the practice of allowing me to tell my story was, was I think, genius in this guy's um, side of things. The second thing he did was ask me um, about my pain associated with my experience. And when I went into my pain associated with that, it was like another level of peeling back these layers of steel that I had folded over that. But it was the first time anyone showed any any recognition that I was in pain and that I was suffering. You know, regardless of all the horrible things I did underneath that, I was it was pain and suffering. And so he validated that part of my experience. And could you articulate it? Because I feel like a lot of young guys I talk to, like they can't even articulate it. It was it was difficult, but he was he was mentoring me, coaching me through this to talk about it. Like it was it was a process. Between. Was this one on one, or were you in a circle with other people? It was, in a, group people? It was okay. in a group setting, but he was driving this part of the conversation because I was about to be kicked out because I was becoming very aggressive in the group um, because of their challenges. Well, once he got me to tell my story, once he got me to acknowledge how painful it was and that I was in pain and that he could see that I was in pain, he asked me a simple, and I was very emotional at this point. Obviously, I was crying. Um, and he asked me, after he, his, his first question was, it hurts, doesn't it? And I'm like, yeah, it does. And he says, I wanna ask you another question. He's like, have you ever hurt anyone the way you're hurting right now? And I think because I was already very emotional that when he asked me that, I really was defenseless. And for the first time in my life, 
I felt something like like regret and remorse because I immediately identified not only had I had I hurt people the way I was hurting I had done worse things to people and the first person I thought of was my mom because my mom was the person who's hurt me the most in this world to this day and I thought I always thought I was better than my mom and I always blamed my mom for what she had done to me and I blamed my mom for what I became until that moment when I realized like I'm I'm a lot like my mom. I'm I'm worse than my mom was to me to others. And that was the first time I was able to identify empathize with one of my perpetrators, you know, in my life. And then I was able to extend that that same compassion and empathy to the man who raped me and my sister um and to all the people that have failed us and abandoned us and it was instantaneous. It was like the once he showed me that I was no better than the people that I was angry at and accusing of hurting me, I had a deep sense for the first time of shame and guilt. Now, that might sound toxic, but when you're an antisocial person the way I was to such an extreme, being able to have those feelings was a first-time experience that opened a floodgate to the shame and guilt, which allowed me to want to change that trajectory in my life. You know, it's weird when you say it like that because I go like, you know, we do think of shame and guilt as like, oh, you never want to shame anybody. You never want to guilt anybody. But in a sense, I don't know, like there's a dignity in guilt. It's like you're taking responsibility for yourself. You're saying like, I have some agency, like I can make things happen. Whereas I think sometimes people are like, oh, you can't help it. Like you're just, you know, you, you can't help what you are. You know, like you, you're, you're powerless in the face of your own loserdom. And I think like to, for him to look at you and sort of go like, you know, have you done anything? Like you are an agent. You can do things. Maybe that shame and guilt sort of gave you a sense of like, well, then I guess I if then I guess I have some ability to guide my own behavior. So, you know, I was just in the prison talking with the men today and one of the men um, created a word that I told him I was going to steal from him. Uh, he called it ownability. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we talk about responsibility. We talk about accountability. But he was talking about because I just finished writing step nine for this group and it's about making amends. But you have to own your part in things. So he, was, he called it ownability. And I think what this man helped me do for the first time is that he didn't he didn't condemn the fact that I was saying I was a victim because I was he didn't see the need in that very moment to say but but that doesn't justify what you did so he didn't condemn anything I said he he heard it he obviously knew the truth about me though that I was a, I was a victim but and, I was blaming and you were perpetrator sure sure yeah right? and you, yeah but he he walked me to that process so that I could discover it for myself and realize it as an unknown as opposed to an accusation or another label from an outside source. His question introduced me to that part I didn't know about myself. And that was that was the moment for me where it was the constellation of other experiences came together and I kind of understood everything all at once about my life, what the messages people had been trying to give me. I was finding a place to receive all those stored memories about those helping hands that were guiding me towards a better self. and. It was only through identifying with my perpetrators that I was inspired to do this work that I'm doing right now. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, you just reminded me of a thing, like, because I work with a lot of street kids in my younger days. And uh, 
one of the common, one of the phrases that we ended up just using over and over again was I would look at a kid and go like, dude, it is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Like, I'm like, what happened to you is not your fault. You, you didn't do it. You didn't like, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility because you're the only one that can change the situation. Like, like the person who hurts you, they're not here. And so like, like they can, other people can wreck you, but only you can fix you and only you can make things better. It's a concept that I've introduced called uh, suffering well, you know, and it comes from M. Scott Peck, The Road Less Traveled. Yeah, yeah. Where he says that the majority of uh, the majority of our, our of our pathology um, comes from an, uh, a refusal to suffer, to endure suffering. And, you know, as if to say that there's some sort of existence that doesn't include suffering. And so. From that, I, I understood what he was saying that, you know, life is about suffering, but we either suffer well or we suffer poorly. Yeah. And best first best first line of any book ever. Right. Life is difficult. <laughs> it's just like you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. And, and if you would, you know, and but most of us think that we can escape the suffering um, or that the only thing we can do is is endure it. And. In reality, you can learn to benefit from that suffering. You can learn to maximize it and convert the energy um, into something purposeful and useful. Otherwise, my whole experience was for nothing. It was all for not. I'm the so in my TED talk, I talk about how we can change what these experiences mean to us, but we cannot change the experience. You can reauthor the meaning of each of those experiences. And so I can take the worst parts of my story, and find value and meaning and purpose that has high transfer value to my new life right now. But I have to I have to be willing to visit those things and revisit those things until I can find and create a meaning. This flies in the face. This is where I, I challenge this concept that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens, period. We subscribe the meaning, whether we're conscious or unconscious about that. Those things don't have meaning naturally, but we naturally ascribe some sort of meaning and attachment to that experience. So we have to build the way we tell that story carefully and thoughtfully. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking at my clock and I'm sad because what you like, I guess like I got so many things that I want to talk about, but, but for now I'm, I'm just going to pivot you for a second because like that moment, like that, that, I'm so glad you described the guy talk, the guy in the group and you talking through, because I feel like a lot of people that I work with, they have somebody in their life that seems to not be enjoying life, not, not making the most of life, not making a meaningful life. And they're trying to figure out like, how do I plant a seed? Like, how do you create an appetite for life? in somebody who seems to not care? Or how do you create an appetite for love in somebody who seems to just be full of rage and hate? And like in that story, you sort of encapsulated like, in a sense, it was asking the right questions in a non-judgmental way, you know? It was. But, but, but your life now, like I'm gonna fast forward you all the way over all the like, the seed was planted and I developed some stuff and I got out of prison, but like 19 so, years later, 19 years later, at some point you end up telling your story in Ireland, right? 
Ireland, um, Hungary, where I did my TED talk, uh, right, London. All, right. So, so, yeah. so you end up telling the story a lot, like, like, but like a lot, I know a lot of dudes that get out of prison and they're like, I fixed, you know, I, I got a new perspective and stuff. Nobody listens to their story. Like how did, like what I'm trying to figure out is like, how did you go from release date to the place where you're with all these other people who are also redeemed kind of from broken, broken lives. And you start this, this organization. You, you, cause I, mean, I get the impression that you guys were all at a conference together and you started talking and you were like, dang, we need to do something here. How did you get there? We, we were all for the most part, the majority of us, um, not all of us, but the majority of us were all doing our own thing in different ways. And we realized that together we could do something that was going to be meaningful. And so Arno, who was the original um, thought master behind the concept of Life After Hate, uh, and the rest of us, the co-founders, decided to turn this online magazine into a nonprofit where we could one day imagine ourselves doing outreach to pull other men and women out of these groups. Um, and so we were really inspired. At this conference, there were about 85 formers, men and women who were all a part of violent extremist groups. Oh, is that what you call yourselves? You call yourselves formers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then there were about 200 victims of violent extremism. So men and women who, um, people like uh, Jill Hicks, who lost both of her legs in the London 2 bombings, Carrie Lamack, who lost her parents in the 9-11 attacks, um, Joe Barry, who is now traveling the world with the man who was a terrorist who blew up her father, who killed her father with an IRA bomb. Um, and we said, you know, we need to do these things. We need to first to, to honor the victims here. We need to partner with them and share, share our light on their mission if they'll let us. But two, we also know that because of who we represent as formers, that we can pull other men and women out. And wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it have been nice that when we were coming out, that there was a group waiting to receive us because all of us did this independently and, and felt very lonely. We felt like tiny ships on a large ocean and never seeing another face, you know? Yeah, and, Cause you know what? You, you can change your perspective and everything, but you still got that gap where the ion should be. Like you still come from, you still come from a broken up family. So you're like, I still need the connection. I need somebody. And, and the guidance towards re-socializing yourself and, you know, like you have to abandon your whole identity because there's not, in the beginning, there's not a lot of transfer value from all of those traits to these new traits. It's only in hindsight that you can say, oh, I used to do this, maybe I can leverage that power or that skill differently. But in the beginning, you feel completely naked, you know, internally and externally feel naked. And so having mentors and, and, and people who are supporting you at different levels, some at the very same speed as you, some who are more advanced than you and anything in between, there's a lot to be said about the value and the worth of having that. The problem with most people who try to change is they try to change on their own, which means they're going to be limited, right? That's like a computer that's not plugged into the internet, right? Uh, but once you plug that computer into the internet, this larger network, then it doubles its its resources almost instantaneously, right? And so people have to under relearn the value of plugging into a different society, but it's challenging because if you have trust issues because of your past and trusting others, you don't see you don't see how you're gonna no, surpass. I, 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 I know. I'm only laughing because what you're describing about former gang members and former white supremacist members 
is exactly the same language. I could just plug it into the way people who leave hardcore Christianity or hardcore Islam feel where they feel isolated and they don't know how their stuff is transferable and they, 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 that isolation breeds a sense of you know sadness and it's, it's the same pathology, man. It's desolate. It's desolate, man. It's, um, and I try to write those things out of my book. I really go to great labor to, to describe not only my childhood and, and how dark and dank that was, but also the transition from that to this and then getting out of prison, getting out of these groups and the, the day-to-day struggle of being out here on an island trying to change. And, and you know, to be honest, you feel like freaking Frankenstein among normal people and you're just trying to assimilate. You're just trying to fit in, but you know you don't. You feel like you stick out like a sore thumb, you know, and, and, and it's that's just why the success rate for people trying to do this is so hard because communities don't know how to engage, receive, or even promote that they're welcoming and willing to give people other chances, right? Second chances, so to speak. Okay, bro, stop, stop. Because I know you got a hard stop. I got one more question for you. Okay, okay. You're doing all this stuff. Like, and I'll steer people to the website and the book and the TED Talk, all that stuff. But like, if, if I was going to say to you, like right now, life after hate, your work, what's the best thing you're doing? What's the thing you're most excited about, the thing you're most proud of right now? Like, you're like, this is what I'm doing, man, and it's people need to know about it, or it's, it's important. What, what's the thing you're doing that you're most excited about? Well, personally, first and foremost, it's being a father. Like, I mean, that, like, that's, my kids are really my source of spirituality. You know, like, they, I, I give so much to that. And the, the importance of that, and it's it's which is it hasn't always been the case. Most of my friends got their lives together when they had kids. I held my daughter and went to jail the next day. You know, like I I don't I didn't have that connection. Um, but my children, being a father, uh, yeah. and and still finding ways to be a better father, professionally, um, I'm a social worker before anything, and and I think I have broken the mold of what social work means. Because you don't have to be sitting at a desk pushing papers in a monotonous role of of something you're dissatisfied with, but feel that's your that's your lot. As a social worker, man, I'm learning to speak languages from all different types of people, community, and systems. So, in many ways, it's the linguistic abilities that I've developed so that I can communicate in a language that others understand. We have a shared and common. Uh, value system when you share language and without that language there can be no dialogue and without no dialogue there can be no reconciliation and so it's I think the best thing I'm most proud of is finding ways to communicate with all sorts of people whether they're the predators or whether they're the victims or whether they're the systems concerned with public safety whether they're the systems that um, you know that are trying to disrupt the system. it doesn't matter to me like you said when you when you strip away the labels and the nuances of particular paradigms or ideologies, underneath that is a human condition. And when you spend time to understand the human condition, that you then can communicate all those things that validate their existence, their experience. Listening in many ways is, is validating someone's existence and experience. And then you don't you learn that you don't have to concede, but you don't have to condemn either. And and being able to stretch a community and insert that narrative into a community where they change the way they receive people who want to change or how they look at the condemned. You know, if you want to look at a white supremacy group and condemn the whole group, 
you're no better off than the people that you're condemning when they condemn you back. So you have to you have to adopt a certain value system that doesn't give way to the emotions and and the rhetoric and and the stereotyping and and the hostility of the culture and climate coming out of the White House. You you have to maintain the core. So that resiliency and that learning of that language really is what I'm most proud of because I think that's why Life After Hate brought me on board because it's it's those types of skills and learning how to transfer those skills to others, um, which is one of my strong suits that I'm hoping to bring and leverage here at Life After Hate and, and any of the other work that I do. But I think it's learning to speak all these different languages, which means I'm taking the time to understand these people, places, and things in a, in a way that's impacting lives. All right. So I'm getting a little teary over here. This is <laughs> – no, no, seriously, because first of all, this stuff is so relevant to the kind of the the people in a very different way is very relevant to the people that I talk to all the time. But the other way is you're taking me back to where I started out, you know, in, 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 in projects in, in Philadelphia and Camden, New Jersey, a place like that. And, you know, when you work with kids, you see so many kids like you probably looked when you were 12 and you wonder what happens to them. And you know that a lot of what happens to them isn't good. And, um, it's just it's just a joy to see you focusing on being a father, f- learning the language so that you can communicate love to people who, you know, you would have not even not only who you wouldn't have looked at, but who you would have looked at with hate um, not that long ago. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Who, I mean, I know people probably tell you, you're wonderful. You inspire me. You're great. Like you probably I hope you're getting a lot of affirmation. But I just want to tell you kind of brother to brother. Um, I, I'm not, I, I'm very proud of you, and and, and it's, I'm proud I'm proud to be connected to you. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for talking. If you want to do if you want to do part two, just just get in the books with Julie. We'll make it happen. Man. All right, man. I'll, I'll be on. I, you know that that will happen. That will happen. All right. All right, baby. Share a link once you put this up so we can share it on our. I'll send platform. you everything. I'll send you everything. All right, bro. Awesome, brother. Thank you. See you, man. Peace. All right, so there it is. My conversation with Sammy. Wrangle, who I think is terrific. And if you want to know more about Sammy, uh, on my website, uh, you know, on, on, on the Humanize Me page, we'll have, uh, you know, links to his book, his TED Talk, which is terrific, a TED Talk about forgiveness, kind of a secular argument for forgiveness, which, you know, I'm, I'm all about. He's also part of a, a website project called The Forgiveness Project, um, and I'll have a link to his his page on there where you can really learn a lot more about his story, the stuff he we just didn't have time for in this conversation, and uh, and of course the love or rather the life after hate website, um, lifeafterhate.org. Um, so yeah, so anyway, you can go, come to barcampolo.org if you want to catch all up with all of that stuff. Um, but no, I mean that that conversation touched me and, and again I'm going to talk to him again so let me know if there's stuff you want me to ask him about there's definitely more stuff I want to I want to find out about I mean this is the guy who really seems to know I mean not seems to know does know how to reach out and connect with people who are trapped in cycles of negativity and hatred um, and ignorance and pull them out and pull them into the good life and uh, that's something that I want to do and I want to know more about. So I got, I got a lot of questions for him.
And if you do, you know where to reach me. You know where to find me. Uh, you also know that on a good day, I give you a good Ingersoll quote. And since I just talked to somebody who I think is special, I want to read this quote about Ingersoll. He's, he's talking about a scientist named Humboldt. And I will be honest with you. I, 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 I don't know as much about Humboldt as I do about Ingersoll. But I think you'll see why I love this quote. Um, because I think he, he, Humboldt is a stand-in for, for a lot of people. And, uh, and I hope that someday I will be in their number. Great men seem to be a part of the infinite. Brother, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to inclusivize some of this language. You know, I, I know Ingersoll himself would if he had written in a different time. So I'm just going to fix a few things. Great men and women seem to be part of the infinite. Brothers and sisters of the mountains and the seas. Humboldt was one of these. He was one of those serene men in some respects like our own Franklin, whose names have all the luster of a star. He was one of the few, great enough to rise above the superstition and prejudice of his time and to know that experience, observation, and reason are the only basis of knowledge. He became one of the greatest of men and women in spite of having been born rich and noble, in spite of position. I say in spite of these things, because wealth and position are generally the enemies of genius and the destroyers of talent. It is often said of this or that man that he is a self-made man, that he was born of the poorest and humblest parents, that with every obstacle to overcome, he became great. This is a mistake. Poverty is generally an advantage. Most of the intellectual giants of the world have been nursed at the sad and loving breast of poverty. Most of those who have climbed highest on the shining ladder of fame commenced at the lowest round. It is hard for the rich to resist the thousand allurements of pleasure. And so I say that Humboldt, in spite of having been born to wealth and high social position, became truly and grandly great. He longed to give a physical description of the universe a grand picture of nature, to account for all phenomena, to discover the laws governing the world, to do away with the splendid delusion called special providence, and to establish the fact that the universe is governed by law. Origin and destiny were questions with which he had nothing to do. His surroundings made him what he was. In accordance with a law not fully comprehended, he was a production of his time. Great men do not live alone. They are surrounded by the great. They are the instruments used to accomplish the tendencies of their generation. They fulfill the prophecies of their age. No wonder that under these influences, Humboldt formed the great purpose of presenting to the world a picture of nature in order that men and women might, for the first time, Behold the face of their mother. Yeah, there you go. I don't know who Humboldt was, but he must have been wonderful, and I want to know more. And I don't know who I am yet, but I want to keep working so that when I'm gone, 
people say, you know what? That guy made a contribution. You know what? We understand a little bit more about how to make the most of our lives because he worked at it. And, uh, and I hope that that's what, uh, that's what we're all doing. I hope we're all working to make things better for the people around us and to help one another understand the majesty of this life, of this natural life, so that we can appreciate it and so that we can exercise the appropriate devotion to life, uh, that great gift from nowhere. All right, I'll see you next time. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.